So we are in Advent right now, and Advent, I, I want you to understand, is the collision of the now and the not yet. That's what we celebrate when we come into the season of Advent. It's, it's the collision of the now and the not yet, the collision of the natural and the supernatural. It's the, the collision between the creator and the created. This is going to bother me again all week. Um, and that collision is, is once, it's ongoing, it's future, and it's final. It's all of these things together at the same time. All right, I'm going to switch to the other one before this gets too far. I think uh, my ears are... with uh, C.S. Lewis. Th this doesn't happen too often. Y'all know I love me some Lewis. Um, most of us have probably heard of, read, or we've had some interaction with the Chronicles of, of Narnia, and you get in, immersed in this world of, of Aslan, who is the Christ figure in there, and, and the talking animals of these heroes who are fighting against uh, evil in all these forms. You get this picture of evil, and you get this line of despair of a world that has been characterized and lost to this evil. The line is that it's always winter and never Christmas. This is where I have a problem with them at a literary standpoint. Because if Aslan is the Christ figure, how do you have Christmas? What, what could you possibly have as Christmas if Aslan is a lion who did not come as, as Christ? See, this is where he lost me. And then later on, you have Father Christmas, which again, you're, you're, you're mixing these worlds, C.S. Lewis. I, I don't know what you're doing here. <laughs> exactly. So I, I want to play off this line, though, as much as I don't like it from a literary standpoint, right? Because this idea that, that it's always winter but never Christmas, you can kind of feel that, right? It, 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 as much as it, it's terrible from a, a mythological point of view, imagine that despair of being lost in a season of cold winter but not having that spark of life, not, not having that, that joyous moment whenever you need it, that when things are dark, there's not this light shining to, to tell you that this season too will and that even here, despite all that we might see, we know, we know that life is more. If you don't have that spark, it's really challenging. But here's where I think Advent really matters for us as a church and, and where I want us to connect all these dots is that we, church, being a people of the presence of God, being in step with the Spirit, who have the fruit of the Spirit, we ourselves are the antithesis to always winter but never Christmas. We are always Christmas, whenever there's winter or not. That's what we bring to this. That's why the fruit of the Spirit really matters for a world that is hungry and thirsty, that needs that. We bring that to the scene wherever we go. The fruit of the Spirit is so important that we understand. It's not just for us. It's for all of us. Those who are in and those who are not yet here. Those who have heard and those who have not yet heard. Those who are, are preparing for a life and those who are, have already had this life. The fruit of the Spirit is so vital because it changes the timber and the tone of this world into what it can be. So once again, for all of us, this is the passage that we've been in now for several weeks. And we're going to see it through. This is from Galatians 5. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the, with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So let me say it once again. We're not talking about personality types or traits. We're not saying, oh, sometimes you can tell a Christian because they're like this. Or, or maybe if you try hard enough, you can, you can get this, this character to, to come out of you. That's not what we're talking about. Anybody who stays in step with the Spirit will begin manifesting this fruit. That's, that's the joy of this. That's the hope of this. When you spend time with the Father, when you spend time with the Spirit, you will become this way. And I, I believe that with every part of me, that you can tell when somebody's been with them. I can tell when my wife has been speaking to her, her family that's in the deeper south because her accent comes out a little bit deeper. You can tell because this kind of comes out of you, right? And you can tell when somebody's been spending time with the Holy Spirit because they start acting this way. They begin taking on that flavor and that, that aroma of Christ. So this passage that we think about as character, though, is really, as we saw last week, about the hope of righteousness. And I don't think we often think of it that way. That, that was a pivot point for me, and I hope it is for you as well, that, that what we're hoping for with these things, we're hoping for righteousness. And that frames the fruit of the Spirit in a completely different way. So when we talk about the coming of righteousness, as this passage is, Hopefully that sounds familiar to you. Y'all, that's Christmas. <laughs> that's what we're looking forward to with the coming of the Messiah, the, the first, and it's what we're still looking for in the Advent season. Again, Advent isn't just once and we look backwards. Advent is the fact that we're here and now saying, also one day he's going to come again. It's this idea of being in a place of longing, expectant, hoping now as we say, Lord, we hope for your righteousness. We hope for it then, and we're hoping for it again. And that hope of righteousness, Galatians 5 tells us, looks like these things. That's why this passage to me has been so beautiful to reflect on in this Advent season. Christ is our righteousness. He's what we hope for. So whenever Paul writes that, that when we're hoping for righteousness, we're hoping for these fruits, this is what we're saying for. And we're recognizing that's the church even in the season in between. That we are in this position of becoming a manifestation, of, of becoming an application of the work of the Holy Spirit here and now where it's needed. That we ourselves are somehow always Christmas, whether it's winter or not. So the church in this age in between is part of the Advent. It's the part of the parousia, the presence. And I think in the vineyard we might shy away from this because it, it emphasizes us. And it kind of downplays some of this ecstatic. And, and I think that that's understandable because it makes me a little uncomfortable to say it out loud, too, that, that we are, are to be looked at as a city on a hill, that we are to be in this dark place, a, a, a light. But that's exactly what Christ told us. That's exactly why his plan was to go away and to give, him the, to give us the Holy Spirit, that we could be in step with him, that we could be in this age in between what he wants us to be what the world needs us to be. It's a responsibility. But it comes naturally as we are in step with the Spirit. And you can tell when people have been with the Spirit or not. So that's the church in this day and age, to be, to be present with both heaven and earth. Um, I came across this, uh, the dean of the Divinity School at Vanderbilt. Her name's Emily Towns. 
And she wrote, whenever Toni Morrison passed in her obituary, um, this really amazing passage that, that I think speaks to us in this Advent season. Um, Toni Morrison, if you don't know, she's this amazing author who taught me that I didn't understand how to read books. Because <laughs> um, the, the first time I read, you know, Beloved, it just went completely over my head. And on my second reading, it still went completely over my head. And then I had somebody who walked me through it. it it's amazing. It, it, it's, it's genius. And there's so much of Christ that's even coming out of it. And she wrote this. She says, what Morrison taught me, above all, is that the holy is both radically imminent and transcendent. In too much of our religious and theological thought, we only focus on the transcendent at our own peril. What we must also concentrate on is the imminent dimensions of the holy, for this is where we sit as living, breathing flesh. This is where we live out the drama of our humanness. That might be theological terms you're not quite used to, so let me just rephrase it a little bit that we understand that this is natural and supernatural. We understand that this is now and not yet. We understand that there's a part of this that is exactly where I'm at right now, that it's coming for me here, but also it's something I'm going to long for. It's something that's going to take me beyond a human experience while I am still here in the normal day-to-day, while I'm still here being a parent, being a friend, being a, a, a worker in, in this world that we live in, you know, where I need to have insurance and I need to have car payments, I need to do all of these things, that the gospel is for both of these things at the same time. That's Advent. That here we are in one place looking and recognizing, but I'm not of this world, I'm of another one. It's transcendent and it's imminent all at the same town time. Let me first tell you a little bit about my own experience here with, with, with peace. One of the things, um, you know, I, I was never quite in, uh, the, a, a bad kid growing up. In fact, those of you who probably have laugh at me for, for saying these things. Um, but one of the things that I did have an intellectual rebellion against Christianity, it was the faith of my parents. And, and I felt like that was the worst reason possible to become a Christian is because my parents taught me. So I had a season where I legitimately said, I don't know what's true. I don't know what, what's going to be the, the, the foundation of my life, but I know I'm not going to come into it with what my parents taught me. And this was my rebellion. And the thing is, as I explored, as I thought, as I went around, as I read scriptures and I read other books and everything that's telling me a greater story, I began saying, well, what is true? What do I need? What does my life need to be about? And a lot of the, the Eastern religions that I was studying and looking into in this time, you know, they, they promised this, this peace, Right. They promise this inner peace of, of kind of being content with yourself and being content with the world around you and all of these things, which sounded kind of attractive and kind of good. But, you know, when you start getting into the practices, the philosophies, what they're doing, it's never actually addressing the brokenness. It's kind of sidestepping it. You know, it's like, well, yes, this happened, you know, and so here's how you can come to peace with it. And it left me in this place of real turmoil because, my sin, which I knew about, had real consequences for myself and for others. I didn't need to come to peace with the brokenness that I had caused. I needed that to be reconciled. And there was no bridge to reconcile that that I could find anywhere but the blood of Christ, which doesn't look at that and just go, ooh, we're just going to sidestep that for right now, or we'll, we'll, treat you, we'll, we'll teach you how to kind of be okay with that. No, I need that to be reconciled. I, I need that to be looked at and peace to be wrought out of the fact that my wrongdoing has been taken into account. D- do you see why peace matters to me? Because it, it wasn't just being okay with something. 
It needs to be dealt with in a way that brings me closer to who he is. So with a traditional approach to peace, we either have victory through overwhelming power and eventual submission, and the problem that I had is this idea of being overpowered and being brought to submission, this idea of peace of, of like the conquering hero who, who just dominates you, it doesn't endear my captor to me, right? That, that's not a, an attractive idea of, I'm going to be at peace with something because I've been beaten in battle. I'm, I'm going to, it's a shalom video that we saw, right? The idea isn't that we're going to have peace because you just showed that you're stronger than me. And if I dare be rebellious against you, then I'm going to lose my way again. And you're going to show me and remind me that you're better than me at this. That's not the peace that endeavors my savior to me. Or if we ignore this problem, this difference, this wrongdoing, I can't go back and undo what I've done. So both of those understandings of peace leave me wanting something else. But what the gospel gives us is a peace that passes understanding. It seems almost like a cop-out to use that phrase, but, but the more that you sit with this, the more you understand it has to be this. Because the whole world tells us how things work. The world tells us how power and, and privilege and how might and how, you know, we're, we're going to stand on these things. All those things paint a certain picture. And yet in it, we can have a peace that we experience, that we're in, invited into, that shapes us and forms us, but somehow takes a t very different form. Christ came to give us peace through, how are we going to describe this? By his blood, through Christ himself being defeated, by letting those who would be evil show their evil ways. So this is Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your, your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's eminent and it's transcendent. And it's beyond our understanding because it reconciles us in a way that endears us to our creator. That we who are once enemies of God are now counted as friends of God and not through this forceful submission, not through his boot being on our necks, but through bringing us in his family by changing the whole conversation that we didn't even know was possible, that we can have shalom and completeness and wholeness in the family of God. I want to acknowledge, before we get too deep, that there are things that we cannot be at peace with and things that we're not called to be at peace with. This is Jeremiah 6. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord, and I cannot hold it in. Poured out on the children in the street, and on the young men gathered together, both husband and wife will be caught in it. The old who, who's weighed down with years, their houses will be turned over to others, together with their fields and their wives. When I stretch out my hand against those who live in the land, declares the Lord, from the least to the greatest, all, the, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. 
They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. I think we misunderstand peace when we assume what it means is, oh, we're just going to ignore all these problems in this world. When we think that that peace means that there's hard things that are happening and we're just going to let it be as it is. And we're going to just, we're going to try to just focus on the good things. I don't know if you've been around somebody who does that. I have a number of people who, you know, they won't say the word cancer. You know, I have a diagnosis, you know, and, and they, they refuse to say things because it feels too dark because they don't want to acknowledge this stuff. But the idea of this, you know, I think in the in literary world, we say I will not go quietly into the night. So this idea of saying there are some things that are outside of the kingdom of God. There are some things that are offensive to the Lord. And this is why this matters. We cannot declare peace with something that the Lord has said that is not of the kingdom of God. And people do this all the time. People look at things and they say, oh, that must just be the will of God. Dear Lord, do you think that the Lord is doing this? Do you think that your Lord is despicable to, to, to bring and to strike down children with, with, with horrible diagnoses? Do we understand that the nature of God, that, that we're just so afraid that anything that happens, we've got to say, well, that's got to be God's will because it happened. This passage tells us not everything that happens in this world is something that God is at peace with himself. And if we ourselves act like that's okay, then his wrath is being poured out on that. That's what he cares about. Recognize who he is. If we have a priest, if we have a pastor, if we have a church that is being greedy, selfish, the Lord's wrath is being stored up against that. And we shouldn't be so quiet that we're just like, well, you know, I guess this is the way that God does things. You know, dear Lord, no. When we have shootings in schools, do we just say, oh, I guess this is what the Lord's wanting to do because, you know, it's so important that we just maintain our freedoms. Dear Lord, no. When we have anxiety and depression, whenever we're struggling with these things in our lives, is it something we say, well, I guess it's the Lord's plan for me? Or do we intercede? Do we bring the kingdom of God to confront the brokenness that we see and that we know around us and say, I know my God's better than this. This passage calls us, as we were singing, awaken my soul, come awake. We must understand that our God is not simply pacifying ourselves and, and just trying to get us through to the next stage. This idea of being in a world in between is not just looking at the brokenness and saying, well, it'll be okay one day, so therefore just grin and bear it. Therefore, just deal with it. God's peace confronts the brokenness and brings it under his rule and reign. That's why we can have a hope for righteousness. Because the way that things are is not necessarily the way that it should be. That's the role of the church, that we are God's presence. We're the parousia. We are, we are here to do something, and therefore we are called to do it. But yet still, in this passage, I can see the words of the hymn, It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Because God is God. I can see in this passage the gospel peace, that the apostles had peace while they were in prison, that Christ was silent when accused, how the gospel prospers during persecution, because there's a peace there. There's a peace that passes understanding. There's this book I read, Tortured for Christ, that um, changed my life, quite, quite frankly, because he has something that I don't know that I have in myself. You know, uh, can you be locked up in, 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 in prison in Siberia for bringing the gospel? Can you be tortured and maintain your faith 
and sing worship songs and, 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 and preach to the other prisoners that, that you're with? Do I have that in me? Am I, am I made of that same stuff? Do I have the strength of character? Do I, do I have the ability to look at whatever the world might throw at me and maintain my faith despite whatever else may come? And I think whenever I look at this, and that other picture, by the way, is supposed to be Paul in prison because he, he has a similar thing. This is in our church history from the very beginning in, until today. This is still a, a thing. Do we, do we have this in us? Or is there something else going on? Is, is our faith made of different stuff? Are we different? Or are we not being called to that? And I think the problem that I have is knowing that we're focusing on the wrong side of it. And that leaves us understanding things the wrong way and frustratingly unable to replicate it. Because we look at that, at that faithfulness, we look at that peace, and we think, I want that peace. But at Richard Wernbrand, who, who wrote this, I don't think he was saying, I want that peace. I think what he was saying is, I want Christ. What he was saying was not, I need to be the type of person who can, who can persevere through this. What he was saying is, the gospel is what has my attention. The gospel message is what matters the most. We're looking at the effect of things rather than the cause. We want to be a person of peace, so therefore we we're drawn to peace. But yet what we should be drawn to is Christ and understand that those things come as we stay in step with the Spirit. And I think we, we miss this whenever we change the order of things. We look at love, joy, peace, kindness. We're drawn to that. We want those things. We like those. I want to be joyous in all things. I, I want to have that. I want to, I want to have hope whenever I don't have that. Well, then the answer isn't to fixate on peace, not to fixate on hope, not try to, to summon that up and make a facsimile of it by our own character, but rather to be drawn to Christ, his message his reconciliation, his power, his glory, and these things happen. We cannot mistake the cause for the effect. We're looking for our enemies often, trying to identify them, recognizing what divides us, looking to draw these lines. The church does this better than most political organizations. What makes me different than them? You know, here, here we are in the same family of God, still trying to, to pursue the kingdom of God. Oh, but you take communion like that? Oh, but you, you baptize by sprinkling rather than immersion? Oh, you think that the Holy Spirit is not as active as I do? All of these things that we might say divide us because we're fixated on that line between. We're fixated on, on what makes me different than you. The vineyard, we have this idea of, of the centered set rather than the bounded set. And I'm not going to get into all that right now, but just to say this, in a bounded set, when we have this line that we draw and we're trying to figure out who's inside and who's outside, what we're focusing on is that line. <laughs> do you agree with the same things? Can you make the same statement of faith that I did? We're looking at that line, trying to say, which side of this line are you on? And we're fixated on that line. In a centered set, we're looking at the center, Christ himself, and looking at him, saying, are you being drawn towards him? Are we focusing on what unites us or what divides us? And that, to me, is the world's definition of peace. The world's defini definition of peace is if you're on the same side of that line, then we're at peace with each other. The, our definition of peace, the kingdom definition of peace, is when we're under his rule and reign, we're at peace with the creator himself and with what he's doing in this world and all the circumstances that we can find ourselves in, focusing on Christ. And then that, that boundary, that, that line, doesn't even make much sense to us. We're not even fixing at it. We're not even looking at that because I'm looking at Christ and him crucified and resurrected that I have life and life to the full. 
Rich Nathan, a vineyard pastor, wrote a, a book, Who's My Enemy? Postmodernists, New Agers, homosexuals, feminists, liberals, conservatives, you know, whatever we might draw as our enemy, and that idea that we're trying to find out again who it is that's other. Who is the other rather than who my God is? Christ tells us this in, in Matthew twenty six fifty two. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. We've tried so hard to reconcile peace and war, but Christ is our model. Where we're looking to try to protect, we're looking trying to defend, we're looking trying to, to fight these fights ourselves, but all of our scripture, all of our history is viewed through Christ. Put away your sword. Francis Fanelon wrote, all wars are civil wars because all men are brothers. I think again, when we look at Christ, we see each other more clearly, not just ourselves. But we have this fascination with judgment, with difference, with enemies. I like the way that that Bible project focused on wholeness, shalom. Because when we think of it as the absence of fighting, we're focused on the fighting. We're, we're, we only see peace because we're looking for that fighting. We're looking to see what makes us different. We're looking to find where we could have a fight if we wanted to fight, then trying to find the absence of that. The peace that Jesus leaves is a wholeness, causes us to focus on him, not even a displacement. You know, dark isn't really anything at all. You can't define dark except by the absence of light, right? Dark is, is just, there's no light there. We can only understand darkness because we know what light is. And I dislike defining things by their negative for that very reason, right? Peace is, is not this, peace is not that. It's important, I think, sometimes because we have a misunderstanding of this, but to say that he is the prince of peace to say we can understand peace because we know Christ's wholeness, because we know what life is like in him. That should be our fixation. That's how we can see this more clearly and more plainly. The call is to focus on Christ. I've, I've never been a good evangelist. Uh, I've tried. I'm grateful to know that the kingdom of God is more complete by all of us together um, because I'm, I'm just not. And I, I, I've done this poorly for a lot of my life. I've done it successfully a few times, but, but it, it's really just not in the way that the Lord has called me, shaped me, and formed me. But I, I, when I was trying this very hardly with certain people at mind, I had this coworker who would uh, argue with me every day. And when I say every day, I mean every day. This was in, in college, and, and I worked often seven days a week for, you know, certain hours, and, you know, you pick up those shifts. And so, again, every day. So imagine a guy's coming into your office to pick a fight with you every day. And I liked this guy, and we were friends, but it was so exhausting. It was uh, very exhausting, because he would go home, and he would recharge his arguments overnight. So he'd come in fresh and, and passionate and, and just ready to go with, yeah, but did you think about this? And this is why Christians are dumb, and this is why faith doesn't make any sense, and, and all this sort of stuff. And I believe that my job was to defend the gospel, Right? I had to contend for the gospel. I had to have an answer for every argument. And so I would sharpen my swords, and I would get ready, and he would say, da, 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 and I'd be like, da, 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 you know? And we'd have this tit for tat. We would go point and counterpoint, and, and it's like, yeah. And, and it, it scratches an itch in a way, and, and you feel like you're accomplishing something, but every day for weeks and then months, and I got tired. <laughs> um, so tired, and he'd show up, as I'm tired, he'd wage his war against me. And I remember, I just smiled. And he argued more, and I smiled. 
And he went on with work. Came in the next day, same thing. Well, yeah, how about this? And I smiled. And then I think it was the third day, the fourth day, he came in, he was smiling. And he said, Josh, I met Jesus last night. <laughs> it's like the Lord just needed me to shut up. <laughs> because his kingdom came as peace. And I asked him, I said, what happened? And he told me he had an actual physical encounter with Christ after he prayed to meet with him. And I said, what changed? You were arguing with me every time. Because you know what changed? When you stopped arguing and you just showed me peace, when I, I realized that my arguments didn't disrupt you, when I realized that, that, that you were a person of peace no matter what I said, you might not have had an answer, and you were okay with that, and you continued. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I've been doing everything wrong my whole life. Because <laughs> it wasn't a strategy. It wasn't something I could do. It was bringing the peace of God into something that was going on. Let, let's make this a bit concrete. Because here's the thing. I don't think that peace is something that we learn about theoretically, okay? Peace isn't something that, that we have to put off for another day saying, oh, that's a great concept, and, and we're just going to kind of leave it as something that I, I want to leave the sermon with an understanding of peace. That, again, this is why I, I, maybe I'm a bad pastor. That's not my goal for you. I don't want you to just understand the words from that Bible Project video and be able to articulate it back to me. I think in this, this Advent season, we're in such a hurry. We, we have such a rush about us. We're, we aren't people of peace often because we're thinking about all the things we have to do. We're thinking about all the problems we're going to have whenever we see family. We're going to think about all this X, Y, and Z, which might do things to my soul, and, and we're not people of the presence of God. And what I think is a really good gift for you here today is to encounter the Prince of Peace. Logistically, seriously, concretely, here and now that you are, are shaped and formed by his presence in a way that isn't something you can tweet about, which isn't something you can make a note about, except maybe in your journal, your diary saying, today I was with the Lord, and it changed me. That's my hope for us. <coughs> so what I'm going to do, what we're going to do, is I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to read some scripture, and I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to be here. That's it. Pray that his peace will settle your soul. I had a um, time in college where I was struggling with um, my, my religious duty, you know, and I wanted to tithe my time. I've talked about this before. I wanted to give a tenth of my day to following the Lord. And whenever you're going more than two hours, I mean, that, that's a lot of time sometimes. And I feel, felt so guilty going to the altar. Sometimes there's a chapel that was open all night. I would go to the altar, and I would fall asleep. <laughs> and I felt like a failure because I couldn't even stay awake. I felt like the disciples whenever Jesus said, can't you even stay awake? And I was beating myself up for this. And then the Holy Spirit said, you need rest. <laughs> when you come here, you're experiencing something of him. And he was giving me rest in a way that I was fighting against. So here's what I want you to understand. Is as you press in, as we press in, recognize what the peace might be. And it might not be a, an anointing that, that, that shapes you in, in, in this whole thing. It could just be your anxious thoughts are quiet for a moment. It could be that the things just kind of feel like, you know what? It's going to be okay. 
all these questions that you might have, all this tor turmoil you might have, whatever it might be, you might be able to breathe, okay? This is my hope for us. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to read a passage from John 20 multiple times. Things might pop out from that passage. You might hear the Lord speaking to you. That's great. Not a time necessarily for you to share that, but a time for you to enjoy it, all right? So Holy Spirit, would you fill this room? Would you fill these words from Scripture with your peace, with your wholeness, with your shalom? On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Peace be with you. Come, Holy Spirit. We're not trying to create a mood. We're inviting the real presence, the creator of all things. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. The disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see the nail marks 
in his hands. Put my finger where the nails were. Put my hand into his side. I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the same house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. He said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting. Believe. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Church, receive the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Nothing can take that from you. Nothing can separate you from the love that's yours in Christ Jesus. No height, nor depth. No sin that you can commit cannot be covered by his love. Hebrews 3 tells us today, as long as it's called today, enter his rest. We can rest because it's not our work. It's not about what you can do. It's not a, a peace that, that we can wage and, and fight for and, and argue our way into or understand so that we can actually kind of prove it. It's a peace that transcends understanding. We're not talking about finding peace or having an inner peace, but having the fruit of peace. John 14, all this I've spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. There's this passage <coughs> that, um, it's always troubled me in Matthew 10. When Jesus sent out the 12 and he says, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey, extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the workers worthy of his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person. Stay at that house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your, your greeting. If it's deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. And I struggle with that. What does that mean? You know, like, how, how is my peace some tactile thing that I can lay down and pick up? How, how, how is this supposed to work? What does that, that mean? And is it harsh to withdraw this? What, what does this actually look like? And it continues, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. A Dutch theologian wrote this, no one can encounter Jesus without increasing his responsibility and if he's unbelieving his guilt. Like I said, there's some things that we can't be at peace with. Some things that we, we, we can't tolerate. There's a call to follow Jesus. If we see him, do we recognize him? Do we celebrate him? 
Do we welcome his lordship, his rule and reign, or do we say, I'm still going to do things my own way? I, I still want to be able to maintain my own autonomy. I still want to do things the way that, that I think is best. There's this um, crazy YouTuber, Mr. Beast. He's actually from North Carolina. I don't know if you know him. His shtick is that he's a generous guy. He, like, overpays for things. He'll give people cars, houses, like, as a tip from a, getting a pizza, whatever it might be. And this week he went to some girl at Duke University and asked her to fly to Paris to get him a baguette. She looked at him like he was crazy and moved on to go to class. Man, what day was that? <laughs> <laughs> then he went to another person at Duke University. And, um, and this guy, he says, you know, will you go to Paris and get a baguette? And the guy said, for real? He's like, yeah. Guy went to Paris. <laughs> Flew first class. Stayed in a hotel. Did sightseeing. Bought a baguette. Came back. Got paid several thousand dollars for his troubles. Here's the thing. This piece, it's not a party trick, okay? We have to receive it. We, we, we have to be at, at a place where we say, yes. And that's really all that it is. <laughs> Your lordship, not mine. I have the ability to walk away from this and not enjoy God's peace. To say, I want to do things my own way. That's within your, your capability. Father, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you have your way? We want to be a people of the presence of God. We want to be a people in service of the Prince of Peace. Your peace will grip us. Your Lordship leads us. So here today, Father, not waiting for Christmas, not waiting for another day, but here today, as long as it's called today, we want to enter into your rest. Rest from our worries, a rest from our anxiety, a rest from, from our anxious thoughts and our to-do lists, and here today, enter into your rest. We say yes to you, Father. Church, I bless you to know that our kingdom has come and is coming. I bless you to understand that there's a collision now between the natural and the supernatural that we all of us have a part to play. So as we settle into the season of hopeful longing that may grip your vision, your hearts, your hopes, your homes, your communities, in the name of Jesus, amen.